You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. It's always interesting to me when opposites get together for a common purpose. You know, when two people from uh, completely different backgrounds, completely different belief systems, join arms, link arms together for some specific purpose. And we've got some classic examples of this. First of all, there's Romeo and Juliet. You know Romeo and Juliet. They came from two warring families, and they fell in love, and they joined together. Two completely opposites. There's Tom and Jerry. Normally, they were at odds with each other, but on occasion, these two enemies joined together. Then there's Beauty and the Beast. No one believes that it's possible a guy this ugly gets a girl that good looking, okay? And yet, ironically, there are some examples of that in this room this morning, all right? And then there's Felix and Oscar. They were known as the odd couple. These two guys were so different from each other, and yet they came together for this specific purpose of helping each other out. And then there's George W. George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, two bitter political rivals at one point, later in life, joined arms together to accomplish some humanitarian uh, objectives, and they raised millions and millions of dollars doing that. And then there's another example of Boy Meets Girl, who would ever think that Chandler could get Monica, right? But that happened on Friends, and if it happened on that show, you know it's possible, right? And then last but not least, even Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are now best friends. Okay, maybe that's hopeful, wishful thinking, but we're, okay, that's a lie. But the truth, the truth is, we can hope, right? Even, even two adversaries like that can hope. One such pairing of opposites are two people who I'm sure most of you probably never heard of. Joyce D. Donato and Joseph Wilson, they met at Sing Sing Prison. Now, Sing Sing Prison is a maximum security facility in the state of New York. And it's, a, it's an incredibly dangerous, and if you visit there, it's a very scary place. Some of the most difficult, dangerous people in that part of, the, of our nation are living there, serving out their sentences. Yet surprisingly, over the last eight years, some of Carnegie Hall's most celebrated musicians have been going to Sing Sing to work with dozens of inmates, teaching them classical music and theory. One of the last things you'd expect to hear in any prison, specifically Sing Sing, is opera playing. But that's what you hear because it's inspiring inspiring people who are incarcerated there. There's a lady by the name of Joyce D. Donato, one of the world's greatest opera singers, and she is going into this maximum security prison and inspiring the inmates with her voice. Sing Sing is one of the most notorious prisons in the world, and yet it's there that D. Donato has broken down stereotypes and created a bond with prisoners using classical music to do so. One of her students is a fellow by the name of Joseph Wilson. Joseph is an inmate who's serving a sentence for murder. D. Donato said that when she first met him, he was incredibly intimidating. And Wilson said that when he heard her sing, 
He didn't get it until he heard her sing. And then he said, I was all in. She taught him how to write music and understand music. And each year, Di Donato performs for the inmates the creations that the students, the inmates, have actually written. Each of the last two years, it's Joseph Wilson's creations that have been chosen for Joyce to sing. Two extremely different worlds came together, and when, a, when they do, we almost always are surprised when something good happens, aren't we? Well, we read of a very unlikely combination, a conversation that happens in John, the fourth chapter, between two people who would have never talked together, ever, except that God was at work. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, turn to John, the the fourth chapter. We're going to start with verse 1, so open your uh, tablets, your phones. You may want to uh, highlight some things as we go along here. In John, the fourth chapter, we see Jesus connecting with a broad variety of people. There's this wide-ranging group of folks, yet they all have this one thing in common. They all put their faith in Jesus. John's fulfilling the purpose of his gospel by making this case that we should believe in Jesus. And he's showing his readers how various kinds and classes of people can believe in Jesus as the Son of God. And it all starts with the most unlikely of encounters. Look what, he, what John writes in the first three verses. He says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Jesus' ministry in the region of Judea was starting to gather some attention. In fact, he was getting a lot of attention. And the growing number of his disciples stimulated the curiosity of the Pharisees, who were the religious elites of that day. This movement could easily have been interpreted as a polit- to having had political overtones. And Jesus didn't want to become you know, involved in any kind of outward uh, conflict with the state, whether it be the, the Jewish government or the Roman government. So in order to avoid all this conflict, he left Judea and went north to, to Galilee. Now verse 4 is a very short verse, but it gives us some kind of a, a nuance uh, that if you were a Jew would mean a lot to you. Look what verse 4 says. It says, now he had to go through Samaria. Now, there's a, there's a map I want to show you real quick. A map of the Holy Land. What you have here is Judea, you have Samaria, and you have Galilee. All right? And the shortest distance from Jerusalem to Galilee would have been to go straight through Samaria. But most Jews didn't do that. Most Jews crossed the Jordan River over into Perea and would go up this direction. The reason that they did that was they would never, ever consider the possibility of traveling through Samaria because they may come in contact with a Samaritan, and if they did, it would make them unclean. Now, here's the background on why that's the case. Israel was two kingdoms. You had the southern kingdom. Can you put that map up one more time for me? Thank you. The southern kingdom, which was Judah, and the northern kingdom, which was the ten northern tribes. 
And that northern kingdom was conquered by the nation of Assyria. The Assyrians came in and they deported the Israelites who lived in the northern kingdom. Not all of them, but a good number of them. And then they resettled in Israel captives from other countries that they had conquered. These people brought with them, as they resettled, they brought pagan gods whose worship they combined with the worship of Jehovah as well as the idol worship which was common there of the idol Baal into this this amalgamation, sacrilegious religion. The city of Samaria had been the capital of the northern kingdom. But when the Assyrians captured Israel, they completely destroyed Samaria. The Jews were le- that were left there intermarried with those who had been resettled there. And the result of the intermarrying was that they worshipped God along with all these other deities and idols. That was the major cause of problems between them and their Jewish neighbors to the south. The hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans continued down through the centuries and probably reached its lowest point in 128 B.C. when some Jews from Jerusalem went up to Samaria and destroyed the Samaritan temple on Mount Gerizim. The Jews of the first century would continue to despise the Samaritans, calling them idolatrous half-breeds. You're not going to win friends and influence people that way. While all along the Jews seeing themselves as the chosen people of God. So it was to some very odd that Jesus would not track eastward over the Jordan and up through the Perean route, but that he would go straight through Samaria. He was a Jewish rabbi, of course. He would not take that straight, direct route, but he did. We read in verses 5 and 6 then. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, the well of Jacob is at the base of Mount Gerizim, the epicenter of Samaritan worship. That's where the Samaritans worshipped in the temple there on Mount Gerizim. They had rebuilt their temple. Verse 7 says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, noontime was when all of this happened. And that would have been an unusual time for a woman to go to the village well to draw water. This would have been a time during the day when most people were taking a break. They would try to escape the extreme heat of the day. Perhaps this Samaritan woman had a sudden need for water, but it's more likely that she just didn't want to meet up with other women from the community who went early in the day to draw water. That's when most people went, early in the day or late in the evening. A well was a locale where people congregated. That's where you would see your friends. You might not see them all day long, but you could see them at certain well-drawing times, and you would catch up. That being said, though, the Samaritan woman seems to have been alone, which is odd in itself as well, since women more often came in groups to draw water. Some have speculated that, that this public shame that's attached to her lifestyle that we'll see here in a few verses caused her to avoid crowds and possibly endure the noondime, noonday heat in order to do her work all by herself. What we're going to see in this text, if we pause just for a moment, 
we're going to see five actions that Jesus took to share God's grace with a woman who he had absolutely nothing in common with, a Samaritan woman and a Jewish rabbi, about as far apart as you could get. And what we'll see is Jesus taking action to see that this woman hears the grace of God. Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Which gives us the very first of these actions. And that is this. Jesus took the initiative. He took the initiative. He always, almost always seems to be taking the initiative. Usually that's what Jesus did. This is significant because Jewish men avoided all social contact with Samaritans and with women in public. In fact, a Jewish man did not talk with his woman, his wife, any women, in public. Not even his own wife. The Samaritan woman naturally was shocked when Jesus spoke to her. Jesus wouldn't have, Jesus' own disciples would have been shocked had they been there. So most Jews wouldn't have talked to a Samaritan. They wouldn't have talked to a woman. They certainly wouldn't have talked to a Samaritan woman. And they would never, ever have talked to a Samaritan woman who had the reputation that we'll see this woman had. And yet Jesus broke through the taboo. And he asked this woman that she give him a drink of water. John then says in verse 8, he says this, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. I think he just wants us to know where these guys are because it's just Jesus and this woman. The woman was surprised to find this man sitting at the well and she was doubly surprised when this Jewish man talks to her. Jesus initially made a simple request for water which one would assume would receive a favorable response. I mean, who would refuse a drink of cold water to a thirsty traveler in the heat of the day? The request did have a surprising element, however, for no Jewish rabbi would ever have volunteered to carry on a public conversation with a woman of any, of any uh, nationality, nor would he have ever drank from a Samaritan's cup. It's clear by her answer that this woman knew all of this also. Which brings us to the second action that Jesus took. Jesus set prejudices aside. I think this is important in the culture that we live in. If you've been watching the news at all, there's a lot of prejudice. There are a lot of social barriers that exist in our nation today. But Jesus set all of those prejudices aside because a person's eternal salvation was at stake. Look what verses 9 and 10 say. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There is a trace of sarcasm in this woman's reply, as if she meant to say, we Samaritans are like dirt under your feet, and until you want something from us, you don't value us, but when you want something from us, all of a sudden, we're good enough. Jesus paid no attention to her flippancy or even what we might read in there her bitterness toward the Jews. 
because he was more interested in winning the faith of this woman than he was in winning an argument. The phrase that John uses there in parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, probably for his Gentile readers, it can be translated a couple different ways. It can be translated as, ask no favors from the Samaritans, or use no vessels in common with the Samaritans. That's probably a really good way to translate it in light of Jesus asking her to draw water for him. Why would Jesus, a Jew, a rabbi, want to use a contaminated vessel to get a drink of water? And yet, to Jesus, it wasn't contaminated. That was just the Jewish prejudices. Our Lord's request was simply a way to open the conversation and share with her the truth about living water. In verse 10, Jesus quickly directed the conversation in a new direction to what he wished for her to know. Which brings us to the third action that Jesus took. He helped her to learn. He helped her to learn. There were two things that he wanted her to learn. The gift of God and who it was who was speaking to her. What was the gift of God? The gift is Jesus himself and his ability to give people eternal life. Those who would receive him. And who was he talking? Who was she talking to? Well, we'll find out in verse 26. She's talking to the Messiah. It's not just Jewish rabbi. But it's Jesus, the Messiah. This verse, verse 10 in our text is identical in its thought to the verse that's found in John 3.16. Maybe the greatest verse in all of Scripture. If you could assign a tag to any verse, that would be one that would certainly be in contention. Some say that John 3.16 is the gospel in one verse. John writes in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus said that if she had known the gift of God that was available to her and who asked her for a drink, she would have asked him and he would have given her living water. Verse 11, she says, Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? This woman heard the words, but she missed the meaning. She didn't understand it. Living water to her meant fresh spring water, like the well water that was supplied there. It was, it was fed by an underground spring. She couldn't understand how he could provide this kind of water when he had no means of drawing water from the well. That well, even today, is somewhere around 75 feet or more deep. The Samaritan woman goes on in verse 12 and following. She says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. Jesus' second reply emphasizes the contrast between the water and the well and what he intended to give her. 
This material water, the water in Jacob's well, would satisfy one's thirst just only temporarily. But this spiritual water that Jesus Jesus was talking about would quench the inner thirst forever. The water in the well had to be drawn out, and it was rather laborious to do that. It was difficult work, but the spiritual water would bubble up from within the heart of the believer. Because of her non-spiritual perspective, the woman's interests were rather selfish. All she wanted was something to save the effort of that long, hot trip from the village. Well, look what Jesus says in verses 16 and 17. He said, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she said. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. Now, this conversation just kind of pivoted, right? They were talking about living water, and then Jesus says, go get your husband. And there's a reason for this. This call by Jesus to go get her husband was both proper and strategic. It was proper in the sense that it was not regarded as good etiquette for a woman to talk with a man unless her husband was present. So it makes sense that Jesus would say, hey, go get your husband. But it was also strategic because it placed her in a dilemma from which she could not free herself without admitting her need with regard to her sin. You see, she had no husband she could call. And she would not want to confess her sexual indiscretions to a total stranger. But the abruptness of her reply when she says, I have no husband, and that's it, it seems to give us a sense that she's touched emotionally by this conversation. Jesus has hit a nerve with her. It goes on in verse 18. Jesus says, the fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. She has this inability to really explain her situation. She's caught. It reminds me of a story of a man who went out partying with his friends one Friday night, and he didn't get home until the wee hours of the morning. It was about 7.30 in the morning, and he realized that as he was trying to sneak in the house, undetected by his wife, that he had left his keys at home. And so he had to knock on the house door, and his wife shows up and says, where have you been? It's obvious she is not happy. And he says, baby, I was out till about 11.30 last night, and I got home and I realized I didn't have my keys, and I didn't want to wake you, so I just slept on the hammock out back. She looked him right in the eyes and said, the hammock's been down for three years. He looked down at the ground and said, well, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. He had no explanation either. This woman had no explanation for the sin in her life. None whatsoever. Jesus asked her to go get her husband, and she replied that she had no husband. And there was no escaping the truths of her story. She was stunned that a stranger knew so much about her personal life. So it's then that she states, and we'll see in just a moment, I can see that you are a prophet. This response marked the change in her perception of who Jesus was. He's not just a Jewish rabbi anymore. He's a prophet. You see, Jewish rabbis approved only three marriages. I don't know if this woman knew that or not. 
She'd been married five different, to five different men. And they may have died or divorced her. We're not really sure. But she hadn't even bothered to marry the guy she was with now. The purpose that John has here is twofold. It's to demonstrate that Jesus has this supernatural knowledge because he's God. But it's also to show that Jesus went after her to save even the worst of sinners. Jesus went after her. and we, I left the word her out, so you've got to insert that in there. A little typo on my part. Jesus went after her to save even the worst of sinners. And he did this in order that her life might be better for all eternity. Verse 19 says, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Jesus recounting all the sordid and sinful truths about this Samaritan woman led her to the swift conclusion that he must be a prophet. You see, it's believed by Jews and Samaritans both that prophets had access to divine knowledge and secrets not available to all the rest of us. The Samaritans actually had a promise that they held on to. It was found in Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter. This promise was of a prophet who would come, who would be like Moses, only he would actually be better than Moses. The Samaritans called their messianic-like figure Taheb. Many have speculated that this Samaritan woman had this prophet Taheb in mind when she calls Jesus a prophet. She responds in verse 20, Our ancestors worshipped at this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This, this is another pivot in the conversation. Realizing that he has this superhuman knowledge, the woman calls him a prophet, but then she tries to divert the conversation away from all of her sin. Since his probing has become personally uncomfortable for her, she begins to argue an old religious issue, an old controversy between Jews and Samaritans, whether it was okay for people to worship on Mount Gerizim, which they are having this conversation right at the foot of, or at Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, where most Jews said was the only place that one could worship. And she, Jesus responds in verses 21 and following. He says this, Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. It's interesting here. Jesus avoids this entire argument about location. He elevates the issue far above that. He didn't make any concessions, but he did suggest that the Samaritans' worship was confused. He says, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. True worship, though, he draws attention to. And he says this, true worship is that of the spirit and truth, which means that the worshiper must deal honestly and openly with God. And that's something that this woman has not done. On the contrary, She's been secretive and unwilling to open her heart to God. But that's about to change. Jesus says in verse 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Only those who have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and who obey the truth 
can worship God acceptably. Only those who have the Holy Spirit and obey the truth can worship God acceptably. Verses 25 and 26, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Now listen to verse 26. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus' insights about this woman's life led her to think of him possibly as the Samaritan Messiah. Mystified by Jesus' words, the woman finally confessed her lack of understanding. I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. That was that one smidgen, that small iota of hope that she had of finding God. As messed up as her life was, she expected that the Messiah would explain the mysteries of life. And now here is a guy who's doing just that. The Samaritan tradition was that this prophet that was predicted by Moses would come to teach people, God's people, all things. And on this sincere yet vague hope, albeit albeit all small, Jesus made his appeal to her. He revealed himself to her which was the fifth action. He revealed that he is the Messiah. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He let her in on the truth. He let her in on the reality that he was the Messiah. He wasn't telling people in Jerusalem, in Judea, that he was the Messiah. He wasn't doing that yet. But he tells the most unlikely recipient of this news, a Samaritan woman, who wasn't even accepted in her own community because of her tainted reputation, he tells her, I'm the guy. I'm the Messiah. Verses 28 and 29 say, Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? As the disciples approached, the woman was heading back to town to report on what had happened. She was so excited that she actually forgot her water pot. At the village, she was so bold to suggest that perhaps the man she had met might just be the Messiah. You don't suppose this could be the Messiah, do you? That would be a fair translation of what she said to the townspeople. And then verse 30, John writes, They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Immediately, she wanted to share her new faith with others. So she went into the village and she told the people of the village that she had met the Christ. And when you consider how little spiritual truth this woman knew, her passion to witness about Jesus puts most of us to shame. God used her simple testimony and many of the people came out to the well of the city to meet Jesus. Certainly she was the least likely prospect for salvation and yet God used her to win almost an entire village of people. If you ever think that you are not sufficient to carry the good news of the gospel, remember the Samaritan woman. Verses 39 and following, this is what John writes. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, 
We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This verse reveals, these verses reveal two key foundations for belief. How we get from no belief to a belief in Jesus. The first is this, the testimony of others. This woman's witness opened the way for the townspeople to know Jesus. If they could penetrate, if he could penetrate her shell and present a message that would transform her, the Samaritans also could believe that he was the Messiah. The second stage was that they would have a personal encounter with Jesus. These people from the town expressed their conviction about this when they said, we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. No longer was their belief based exclusively on this woman's testimony. They had progressed from faith built on the witness of another to faith built on their own experiences. And so the most unlikely encounter, Jesus and a Samaritan woman with a bad reputation. You've heard of the good Samaritan? You could easily call her the bad Samaritan. And yet, what an amazing turnaround of events. What can we take away from this? How can we apply this story in our lives? Let me give you three applications very quickly. The first one is this. Just like Jesus... When it comes to sharing faith, reject barriers and prejudices that separate us. Reject those things that keep us from people who need to hear about God's love. They're all around us. They are. This past Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King's birthday. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. One of his greatest quotes That was the essence of Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. He was looking past all the prejudices and all the social barriers because she needed what he had, living water. That day that Dr. King dreamed about, it could be today if we choose it to be. Don't allow prejudices, don't allow social barriers to keep you from sharing Jesus with people around you who are far from him. And just like this Samaritan woman, the second application, tell someone what Jesus means to you. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. We're all surrounded with people who will face the wrath of God unless they accept Jesus Christ, unless they experience God's grace. You don't have to have it all figured out. So just using John 3.16... Take some time and tell someone what Jesus means to you. And then share that verse with them on how Jesus can save them. And then thirdly, invite others to worship with you. Each week we come together and worship the Lord. And in the process, we have the possibility of encountering Him if we lean into it. And just like that Samaritan woman invited the townspeople back out to the well to meet Jesus, invite people to come with you to have the possibility of encountering Him. Invite them to join us in this celebration of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your love for me. I thank you for your love for us as a family. And Lord, I know that uh, this story is 
one of those kind of odd couple stories, maybe the most extreme of odd couples. And yet, this woman came to know you and she changed her entire city. God, let that be our story. As individuals, as a church, let there be people who are in our path who need you, who need this living water. And help us, God, to not allow prejudice or social barriers to get in our way, not to allow our own pride or fear to get in the way, but to share with them what Jesus means to us and to invite them to be part of our fellowship and our celebration here. God, I pray for lives to be changed as a result of the simple testimony of this Samaritan woman. God, we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you've never taken the step that this woman took to make Jesus the Lord of your life, there's going to be some folks down front during this next song. We'd love to talk to you about that. Or maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. You're hitting a rough patch and the life's kind of tough right now. If you need that, will you come as we stand together? Let's worship him. Come if you have a need.